if the work you do involves in any way sending large amounts of email to large amounts of people, you are going to love today's guest. I'm not going to ruin the surprise because it's already in the title. This is Using the Whole Whale, stories of data and technology in the social impact world. My name is George Weiner, your host and the chief whaler of wholewhale.com. Thanks for joining us. Beyond excited today because I get to be a data nerd in a candy shop. Wait a minute, that metaphor doesn't make sense. Well, if the candy shop were a pile of insider information around email strategy and communication from an amazing organization like the Environmental Defense Fund, then yes, that is an accurate statement. I'm speaking with Emily Stevenson at the Environmental Defense Fund, and she is the manager of the online CRM fundraising at the EDF. So she basically has the finger on the trigger of all of the emails that go out. And I was very surprised at how methodical and how thoughtful their approach is and how it evolves. And so keep in mind, this is a snapshot in time. We're speaking, you know, in Q2 of, of 2017. And what excites me is I could speak with her next year and maybe we're learning entirely new things. That said, I think you're gonna find that there's some fundamentals of strategy like only sending emails to people that are going to read them, like segmenting your audience and testing assumptions, that will prove to be universal truths. I'm too excited to keep talking. I'm, I'm going to jump right into it and send you into this amazing interview with Emily Stevenson. I'm here with Emily Stevenson, the manager of online CRM fundraising at environmental defense fund emily thanks for joining us today yeah it's really great to be here so i imagine it's pretty calm over there there's no big fires or issues <laughs> with anything going on you guys are pretty mellow because you know the environment and everyone believes in the work you do right so pretty calm <laughs> over there you know, I think on a, on some level, I do think everyone believes in the work we do, but uh, maybe there are forces in the world that are uh, not always in agreement. Is it like the Hamilton, like eye of the hurricane, or is it just like hurricane? You know, in some ways, it is very much a hurricane. There's so much going on, so many parts moving fast. Um, in another way, it almost feels like I've never had to do less work to get people energized and, and engaged and activated. People have really come awake in response to the threats that we're seeing. Mm -hmm. So officially, global warming, true or false? Very much true. Okay. I just want to make sure where our audience is clear where uh, where we stand. Okay, so let's uh, let's get a little bit more into it. How did you end up in this uh, incredible role at an amazing organization? Um, I think like a lot of people in digital marketing, I sort of fell into the role. My background is in academic sociology, and around the time I was finishing up my master's degree, I sort of realized I, I didn't want to go into academia and um, just sort of found a job ad for a membership development officer role at a nonprofit and thought, oh, I, I could do that. And so I left academia and I went into that job and sort of very quickly learned that I was good at uh, fundraising and I really enjoyed doing it. And I especially liked doing it online. I had a short stint at a very small nonprofit where I really got to create everything from scratch in terms of the online program. And that really set me up well when EDF was looking for their first dedicated online fundraiser. I really like uh, that EDF had such a testing culture, which my background in social science was a, a perfect fit for. So I really feel like I found the perfect job and uh, never would have thought growing up that this is where I would end up. Don't think I even knew it was a job option. <laughs> well, I mean, gosh, 10 years ago, not a job option. Exactly. So this is interesting that EDF was suddenly, you know what, we need to pay attention to digital fundraising. How has that concept of fundraising from humans online evolved during even your time there? 
Oh, hugely. Um, both in terms of, I would say, our share of the pie of the membership revenue has doubled. I think we went from about one-sixth of the program when I was hired in 2012 to about one-third uh, last I saw so far this year. So we're growing uh, increasingly larger every day. And, uh, you know, every couple of years, I feel like that ends up translating into a new headcount. And then we're able to do more complex and sophisticated things. The real big push, I would say, is from doing almost, uh, you know, offline marketing through email to really taking advantage of all of the things that email and online can offer in terms of being highly personalized and reacting to what our supporters are doing on our website, on social media, over email, uh, and really being able to take advantage of all those tools that are emerging. So you use the word membership. What does that really mean in the EDF world and how has that evolved? Yes, yeah, so well, I guess it depends on who you're asking. There's sort of a there's a legal definition of membership if we're uh, wanting to prove standing in a in a lawsuit that we're filing, and um, that's a very technical one that I'm not even sure I know the definition of. But we consider anyone who joins up and takes action with us to be a member. Um, you can also be a dues-paying member if you support us with a donation. But our activists are definitely members. Gotcha. Now, what role? does email play in the, the sort of nurturing of, of members and working toward fundraising? Oh, it's hugely important. We get so many more opportunities to contact our donors through email because of the relatively lower costs. So we can spend more time really just engaging them thanking them for their previous donations, uh, sending them information and, and breaking news updates and action alerts and all of this stuff that would be cost prohibitive to, or, and probably annoying to be receiving in the postal mail that often. But people love to be kept up to date online and we're really able to show that we know them and we appreciate what they do. And so when the time does come to make the fundraising ask, we've you know got that real good, warm, fuzzy feeling and hopefully it'll make them more likely to respond. So I want to give our audience a sense of the, the size and scope of what we're talking about. When you say, uh, you know, an email messaging, on a, it's a Tuesday. We're going to send off to, you know, a couple people. How big is the list and how are you thinking about segmenting? Sure. Uh, we have about 2 million members and activists on our list. Um, we very, very rarely send to all those people in a single blast email. Uh, that's just not the way things are done anymore for deliverability reasons, uh, sender reputation, and, and also just for purposes of not annoying people with email they don't want to receive. We always want to send an email to the people we think are going to be interested in its content and are going to appreciate receiving that email as opposed to feel annoyed by it. Uh, so one of the most powerful tools we have for segmenting the file to determine who's going to be interested in an email is is past behavior. Uh, a lot of things that we think might have really niche areas of interest, we will only send to people who've previously engaged with emails or action alerts on that topic. Other things that are sort of in the middle, we go out to people who've recently been opening and clicking a few emails in the past couple of months. They're showing signs of life. They're showing signs of continued involvement. And things that do really well with that group, we think, okay, this this has some broad appeal. Let's send that out to the full list and, and give them a chance to start opening and clicking and engaging so they can get into that more active group. Man, lots to dig into here. You know, I I feel... I feel like there's somebody thinking right now, wait a minute, you don't just, you have 2 million people, you should just message <laughs> them all. How dare you not message people? What if somebody wants to hear from you? So let me just play this hypothetical world out where you message 2 million people every week. You said the word deliverability. What, what is the actually like the, you know, the bits and bites behind what might happen if you did that? Sure. There's a couple of different threats that result from that. Uh, the first one is the sort of simple one that just you might be annoying people. They're going to unsubscribe. They're not going to find your content valuable. It's going to hurt your relationship with your donors and you don't want to do that. Uh, on a more technical level, there is a lot of gatekeeping that goes on at the email service providers, not just in terms of like, are you going to get delivered uh, to the email address? But then even once you're delivered, are you going to get in the inbox or are you going to go into the spam filter? And one of the things that the email providers really look at to determine are you legitimate email, are you spam, is how well their other 
how well their users are engaging with your email. So if you're constantly sending emails and nobody's opening it, Gmail kind of looks at you and says, well, clearly these people are sending junk. None of our users are actually opening it. We're just going to send that right to spam and, and keep it out of people's hair. Uh, there are also email addresses can definitely go bad over time. People change their email addresses. They move to a new job or, you know, there's always things like with the Yahoo email accounts. There was a, a big thing recently with when AOL bought them, all these addresses are going to start to go bad. And over time, those become what we call spam traps, where if you email that addre address, there are spam filters that say this is a definite flag that they are not looking for interested parties. They are just blanketing the web with unwanted email because this isn't even anyone's real email address anymore and they're still emailing it. So the more you can avoid doing things like that and really only send email that people like and they're opening it and they're clicking it, uh, the better a chance you have of getting into the inbox of the people who do want to open and click. Wow. So you're telling me there's these like fake little honeypots out there meant to like catch spammers and if you absolutely and if it's on your list like oh my gosh so there's a real reason to to prune your list uh so talk to me about actually that that pruning how do you get rid of those you know we'll call it dead or archived email addresses or honeypot email addresses and what kind of open rates are you trying to to achieve when you segment sure I would say the, the main tool that we use is our uh, email platform. We use Luminate Online, and they have the ability to develop what they call engagement scores, where you can take any number of activities that people could do with you and assign point values to them to calculate a score. So we assign uh, five points to an email click and one point to an email open for one of our rolling scores. Uh, and on, on a past three months basis, you need to have at least five points to get into that most recently engaged group. So in the past three months, you've either opened at least five emails or clicked at least one of them. And that's what keeps you in the, the main mail stream. Now, if you don't click or open anything or take any online action for nine months, we'll probably never email you again. Uh, if you were to come back on your own volition and take an action alert or make a donation, you could get back into the messaging stream that way. But after nine months, we assume that you're not using that email address anymore or you just don't want to hear from us. <laughs> wow, that's a hard line to take. Uh, is it tough to press delete on like what for you must be like tens of thousands of emails? Well, I will say we don't actually press delete on anyone. You don't want to end up uh, you don't want to end up reacquiring those email addresses later if you already know they're no good. You know, there's a lot of places out there where you can uh, rent lists or, or borrow them, and you don't want to end up with that issue. Um, but it's just sort of a, an ongoing suppression. And if you're continuing to acquire new names and grow your list, I actually find that our, our lists continues or our active list size continues to steadily grow over time. We're bringing in enough people and retaining enough people to make up for that churn. Especially you figure some of the email addresses that go bad probably are someone legitimately changed their email address and signed up with that one. Mm -hmm. So how, you know, getting back to, uh, let's talk about some just metrics that you expect and, and scheduling out frequency. How often are you sending that, we'll call it that, you call it the main list of engaged members? Yes, our, our recently engaged file probably gets uh, anywhere from two to four emails a week from us. Wow. And what kind of open rates do you expect or, or maintain on that? With that group, we like to see around 30%. Uh, if they've been recently opening and clicking, we like to think that, you know, if, uh, about one in three of them will continue opening and clicking. Wow, that's incredible. So we're probably talking in a neighborhood of hundreds of thousands of folks getting two to three emails a week. Yes. Mm -hmm. How did this strategy evolve? Because some of it is like maybe intuitive to you, but there are folks sitting there being like, oh my gosh, what do you mean you have 2 million? You're, you're only like messaging, you know, not even half of them on, on this basis. How did you evolve your, your segmenting and your strategy and how does that lead into donations? Right. It's really all about remembering to put the donor first and don't see them as numbers or, or ATM machines or just a record in your file. It's a real person out there who has a relationship with you and you want to nurture that relationship and do what's best for it. The warmer and, and fuzzier they feel about you, the better of a donor they're going to be. So I like to think if you just take care of the warm, fuzzy part, the donations part will mostly fall into place as long as you remember to ask. All right, I got to push you on this. Like, I, I know you're the EDF and like obviously pennies fall from heaven 
um, caused by hell. So let me come back to this. Like, how are you getting a human to give you money via email through these messages? Um, and how do you balance the the nurture versus ask um, in terms of what the content is? I would say you should probably be sending something that is not an ask five times as often as you're sending something that's an ask, which a lot of people, the jaw drops when I say that, but you need to spend most of your time thanking your donors. They are the only reason that you can do what you do. They're your lifeblood. Don't just thank them the one time when they receive the gift or when you receive the gift from them. When you have a win, send out an email saying, hey, here's this cool thing that just happened. You contributed to this. Either you took action or you made a donation. And hey, we won. And that's all because of you. Um, people are always interested in those sort of closed loop things. And I think it's one of the things the nonprofit world is is the worst at is following back up with people who contributed to an effort and letting them know that they made a difference. Yikes. Yeah. And, and a lot of data suggests that when you see these, these benchmark reports come out. Uh, I'm curious, though, from the date of first email acquisition into the system to donation, what is the expected cycle time uh, if that is, in fact, a benchmark for you to giving? You know, I don't know if I have a, an average number offhand, but I do know it's a precipitous drop off. Uh, if you don't give a gift within the first 30 or 60 days, it becomes very, very unlikely you're going to give one at all. You know, that does end up becoming a very large file of non-donors. So even if you just pick up a few every now and then, you can still, you know, that file's not worth ignoring, but they do become extremely unlikely. Wow. So it sounds like then your your big wins are coming from re-engagement and sort of asking at least well, at that pace once a month. Is that is that about right? Yes, I'd say, you know, depending on the natural cycles, uh, you know, for instance, summer, we do barely any fundraising because everyone's on vacation. They're not checking their email. Congress is on vacation. There's not much happening in the news. Uh, and then, of course, the opposite end of the extreme in December, it's, you know, donate to year end, donate to year end, donate to year end. Everyone's already in the mindset. Everyone is expecting to be solicited. Your competitors are doing so much solicitation. You kind of got to keep up. Um, but I would say in a, a middle sort of month, I would want to have at least three or four emails going out to at least some audience um, making a hard ask. We also are very um, diligent about putting what we call soft asks on tons of the other things we do. Every time you take uh, an action alert, you sign a petition online, you're going to be presented with a donate form on the back end. At, you know, thank you for making your gift. Would you like to go one step further? And, uh, or sorry, thank you for signing a petition. Would you like to go one step further and make a gift? When we send out sort of fun uh, picture slideshows and quizzes and uh, engagement pieces like that, you'll often find a little uh, donation form widget in the side rail of the page. So if you're feeling inspired and motivated by all this nice warm content we gave you, it's a real easy path to make a donation there. Gotcha. Talk to me about some of the metrics and key performing indicators that you use to make sure that you're on track, that you report to uh, report to the leadership? Yes, I love that you said uh, metrics and KPIs because those two words often get used interchangeably and they're not quite the same. Um, KPIs are things that are actually telling you if you're doing a good job. So I would say the big ones for me would be um, our lead conversion rate, or in other words, the percentage of our new people on file online who become donors in a certain given period of time, uh, and as well as our online donor retention rate and our value per donor. Basically, are we keeping people? Are we growing our active donor list? And are we getting them to give as much as you know we can get them to give? So those I would say I look at on a rolling quarterly basis to assess the health of the overall program. Uh, unfortunately, they don't provide a lot of actionable insights, and that's where other metrics come in, um, sometimes called diagnostic metrics, sometimes called vanity metrics. Um, they're often called that because it's super easy to game them. It's things like open rates, click rates, unsubscribe rates, landing page conversion rates, average gift size. Um, they're really great for finding out where in the funnel you lost someone or what you're not doing as well as you could. 
Um, the diagnostic metric that I rely most heavily on on a day-to-day -day basis is dollars per thousand emails sent. Um, I really love this one because it's a single unified diagnostic metric that reflects all of the stages of the funnel. And if someone falls out at any point along the way, it's going to hurt that number. If you boost any one of those metrics substantially, the impact's going to shake out in the dollars per thousand as well. Uh, and I mentioned they're often called vanity metrics because it's easy to game them. Uh, you can easily boost your open and click rates by you know, only emailing people who clicked an email last week, probably 100% of them were close <laughs> to it, will uh, we'll click again this week. Um, and so you definitely should suppress your least active subscribers, but are your emails really any better if you're doing that? So at EDF, we calculate the dollars per thousand, uh, a set of benchmarks on a rolling 12-month basis, and score our emails relative to recent performance on this metric. So it's sort of an internally consistent flag to look closer at something. If uh, an email comes in in the bottom quartile of, of all the scores we've gotten in the last year, well, what went wrong there? Did we send it to an audience that was too disinterested? Was the open rate low? Was the click the problem? Did people just give tiny gifts? Um, or if something does really well, what went right there? You know, what metric did we really see uh, jump up? And that's the clue to that's something we did really right there. So it's sort of a, a diagnostic flag to signal that we should probe further. Interesting. And can you share where your dollars per 1K emails hover around? Sure. We have um, I've actually a very wide range there. It's anywhere from about $5 to 40 I would say, is the middle 50%. Um, anything above 40 is is upper quartile, um, and anything below 5 is lower quartile. Wow. Per 1,000 emails, not just the ask emails, like even the ones that are just like, hey, we won oh. yesterday. Right, I will say that is for that is for hard fundraising appeals. There we go. Okay, because yes. <laughs> I had I had some wide eyes on on the map. <laughs> I was like, whoa, pennies do fall from heaven for you. Right. Uh, we do get some we do get some nice donations in from the from the action alerts and the cultivations. But yeah, they're not quite the money makers the hard ask is. Yeah, yeah. So with regard to the lead conversion, that's also very interesting to me. You get, you know, let's say a thousand emails in, you know, tomorrow. Uh, what percent of those are you expecting to close, say, in 60 days? Because that's your your sensitive window. In a little bit, our expectations are tempered based on, you know, is it a new source we're testing out? Is it a proven source where we're really trying to push our performance up on that one? But I would say one to three percent is is usually a pretty typical conversion rate. You get in a lot of names usually to only get a few donors out of them. Um, the cost of the acquisition also factors into, you know, usually if you pay less for names, you're going to have a lower conversion rate than the ones that you pay more for. We have uh, department wide a three year to pay back rule. So um, the total cost of the, the acquisition buy should be paid off by the value that whole group generated in the first three years. Now, when we talk about email acquisition, what are the different channels by which? you are you are acquiring and you can talk about it broad strokes if you want or as specifically as you can yes um we do have a a, a very uh, the workhorse of course of the program is the direct mail program and they do a lot of prospecting in the mail and we do try to collect email addresses and append email addresses for people that come on through the mail uh, many of your listeners may know that multi-channel donors are worth more than single channel donors regardless of what the single channel is uh, online tends to give more than in the mail but people who give both online and in the mail are your most valuable people usually um, and then online, it's a lot of um, a lot of our volume comes from Care2 and, and formerly Change.org, who have gotten out of that business or are in the process of getting out of it. And then we have actually a, a woman on staff whose full-time job is to find new names for us online. She does that in all kinds of ways: uh, display ads. She does partnerships with. Uh, other vendors. We had, for instance, recently she worked out a deal with Grist where we drafted an email and they sent it to their list on our behalf saying, hey, you should check out this message from our friends at EDF. We think you'd like it. And then anyone who responds to that now becomes a, a donor or a member of our list. Um, a, lot, a whole lot of uh, different things that she does. Social media, of course, is a, is a source for acquisition with her. Mm -hmm. And so what about the general website as well? I, maybe I missed that in terms of just email acquisition, pop-ups, and what have you. Oh, yes. We definitely have uh, just about every, at least, membership-oriented page on our site has an email sign-up. Um, we do have a, an overlay that pops up, and it sort of depends on 
what the current highest priority um, action is for us during a major fundraising campaign. That overlay is probably going to ask you to make a donation. When there's not as much going on, it's probably just going to ask you to sign up. We currently have a big banner at the top of our homepage. If you were to go to edf.org that says something like, you know, stop President Trump's attacks. And if you click on that, it takes you to a sort of one page hub of all the different things you can do to get involved in that fight, including signing up for our emails. Wow. Land, land, air, you are bringing in emails from everywhere. Uh, and, and for good reason. You mentioned multi-channel donors. Um, and just to clarify, we're talking about humans that give when you send direct mail or even events or definitely over email. Uh, how, how does your or does not, uh, how, how did the systems work together? How does email supplement and even support the, the direct mail piece? Do those departments work together? Are there advantages to, to working in conjunction? Yes, absolutely. Um, an important thing to remember is that, you know, we think of ourselves as operating in channels and the donor doesn't think that way. You're one organization that they have a relationship with and you just happen to be sometimes sending them mail. Sometimes it's email, sometimes it's a telephone call. So we try to keep that in mind and really talk to people as one organization speaking to a whole person. Of course, there's often technological difficulties to how successfully you can do that, but we try as much as possible. Uh, for instance, if you're doing telemarketing, your firms will usually deliver you a, an end of campaign file with all of the email addresses and the final outcome. Did they say no? Did they say yes? Did they say, well, I'll put one in the mail or maybe? And then you can we send them targeted emails uh, saying, you know, you don't even have to mail in your gift. Why don't you just make it here online? Thanks for your pledge uh, or saying, you know, thanks for taking our call. I understand you didn't want to give it at the time that maybe you'd like to give now, um, sort of giving them whatever is the right follow up to the outcome of their call. We also get lists from the direct mail team when they're going to be doing a mail piece and try to do a pre touch email saying, keep an eye on your mailbox. There's going to be something in there from us, uh, hopefully makes them a little more likely to open that piece of mail. Of course, in direct mail, you don't have an open rate you can look at to confirm that. Who knows if they opened the envelope or not. Uh, but we try to integrate that as much as possible, even um, little things if we don't do a whole separate email about it. I might still say in a, in a conditional conditionalized line for people who are on that mail recipient list, the first line might say, and we sent you an email, up, or uh, we sent you a postcard about this that you can also look for in your mailbox or um, some other way to let them know we're talking to them in the different channels. Of course, really the heart of this is having a good uh, database of record that can talk very easily to all of your different production tools. And, and if they can't talk easily, you kind of have to do a, a good bit of manual work to, to import all those lists back and forth. So some of the people listening may be worried about sending multi-channel all at once. However, it seems like you're using it as an opportunity to remind somebody all at once that you exist, there's an important issue. So uh, would you also potentially layer in uh, remarketing advertising if it were possible to, to reach a donor such that you would be following them with ads online, you'd be ending up on their mailbox and their digital inbox? Oh, absolutely. We're definitely um, not only uh, sending people who are getting these mail and email appeals are being targeted for ads. We also try to pixel people as much as we can. And, you know, especially whoa, whoa, if whoa. you're like, you pixel me? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, what does that actually mean? Oh, yes. Uh, part of my jargon. Yes. A lot of times when you're visiting different websites, there's a, a little image that fires off and, and sort of tells us who you are so that we can, it doesn't tell us exactly who you are, but it tells us that you're a distinct person so that we can recognize you when we see you in other places and serve ads to you. Pretty, pretty crazy stuff. And have you seen or been able to test any upside to saying, all right, layering in this advertising? Or are you kind of going on instinct knowing that, look, the more times a human sees you, you build up familiarity, mental availability, and likelihood they'll give? Yes. Um, we did do some testing around this a few years ago just to make sure we were on solid footing. Uh, but at this point, we pretty much take it for granted that more communication, as long as it's high quality, is going to be more effective. I always like to give the example that, you know, if you're driving along in your car and you hear a commercial on the radio, if anyone still listens to radio anymore, for McDonald's, uh, just because you don't immediately pull over and go to the nearest McDonald's and buy something doesn't mean McDonald's wasted their money running that radio ad. 
Um, you're not always going to have a direct conversion, but the more you stay top of mind and, and keep people thinking about you and your cause, uh, generally the better you're going to do. Gotcha. Um, out of curiosity, when you, if you know the numbers, what kind of lift was it like a 5% lift, uh, you know, negligent, I mean, somewhat meaningful, I guess that. Yeah, it was ads, enough. Right? Unfortunately, it's been enough years now that the, the numbers have been and the lost to time. Yeah. So yeah. We, you did test it, and obviously, if you if you spent a hundred bucks, you made at least a hundred and one dollars. Yep, and I did have actually a really um, interesting test I ran just this past year at year end that sort of touches into this. Uh, we noticed that a lot of our higher value donors were almost never giving a gift in response to an email appeal. So we started thinking, well, are we annoying them? Do they not want to get these emails? Um, you know, this is a very sensitive, you know, important group for us. We don't want to offend them. So I decided to test sending fewer email appeals during the year end campaign. I parceled off a nice conservative 15 percent of my list to test this on since I didn't want to go too big with such an important group and sent them just one fewer email than the rest of them got. And the result was actually really surprising even to me at this point. Um, we looked at the year-end response rate overall uh, in any channel over the entire course of the campaign, how many gave a gift. And we got an overall 8% lift to the group that got that one extra email. Um, there was also a shift of they were more likely to make their gift online and less likely to make it by mail if they had received the email. So there was some just channel shift, but there was also a genuine lift that resulted from that overall. Wow. And, and incredibly, uh, not one of the gifts that we received was to the missing email and less than 5% of the gifts we received were to email at all. Um, it was people just, it was one more communication that made them think about us and pushed some percentage of people over that edge they needed to get pushed over. Wow. So let me tease this apart a little bit more just to like show this as like obviously diminishing, uh, not a diminishing return yet, uh, still uh, marginal lift. How many emails in total were, are you sending to your, to your donors or your high net worth donors in, I'm talking about December probably or post Thanksgiving? Yes. So this was during the month of December. Um, we had a, an appeal that went out on Giving Tuesday and the day after. Uh, over the next couple of weeks between uh, Giving Tuesday and about Christmas time, the main group got five emails and the test group got four. And then they all got eight in the final five days of the year. Wow. So <laughs> that's a lot of emails. It's a lot of email. <laughs> But if I'm thinking this, somebody else is thinking, well, wait a minute. If that eighth email did so well, what about a ninth email? Like at what point – look, at what point is it just freaking too many emails? Because so far you seem to be suggesting that maybe you should have sent more. I think the metric to really look at there is your unsubscribe rates. Uh, you know, To some extent, you are going to lose subscribers every time you send an email. Um, as long as it's within a reasonable amount, that's – probably the the outcome you wanted. I often like to think of it as, you know, how many, if you send one fewer email in order to retain some more subscribers, what was the revenue cost from that? How much did you pay to prevent an unsubscribe? And if you think about that in terms of how much you'll pay to acquire or, uh, an address or a pendant address, your tolerance for paying to prevent an unsubscribe is probably pretty low. Um, so I'd say when the when the ratio of the unsubscribe rate starts to get higher than you can tolerate for the amount of revenue you're getting in, that's where you stop. Wow. Or if your member services department tells you they're getting like a crazy amount of complaints. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on broad strokes, it sounds like the people listening should take note of the amount of frequency that you're willing to send and how you're segmenting in order to keep your your most engaged members continually engaged and involved. And there's a there's a high tolerance here. And I don't think enough folks are sending enough emails. Is is that your your sense as well? Oh yes, absolutely. This is one of my sort of soapboxes I like to oh, get, get up, up there. Get up um, there. There's really this misconception that, you know, people will fatigue and they'll be annoyed that you're emailing them all the time. And that is true sometimes. The important thing is figuring out when it's true. Uh, and it really comes down to relevancy and value. Uh, if you can think of, I'm sure everyone out there has a daily email they receive. Maybe it's Groupon or Living Social. Uh, for me, it's Refinery29. They send me an email every day and I love it. Um, 
there are other groups that send me an email every day and I hit delete every time and it's annoying. <laughs> uh, and it's really about the content of the email. Nobody is upset about getting email that they think is valuable and relevant. So you really just have to pay attention to how your file is responding. If, if they're engaging with it or are they unsubscribing? Are they writing in to say, well, thanks. I really appreciated getting this. Or are they writing in to say, oh my gosh, stop emailing me and just give people what they want. Nice. So let's come back. You, you're obviously running a lot of tests. How do you approach A-B testing of, you know, subject and of message? And what are some of the, the surprises that you found? Yeah, um, I guess so much of the testing that we do is iterative. At this point, it's often a test that was inspired by a previous test where Maybe we got a result, but we weren't sure why we got the result or, or the result was a little bit muddy. So we kind of went back and designed a new test to try to clear up that um, that mess. A while back, we created a gift ticker for our donate forms that displays recent gifts in real time. And in the initial testing, we got kind of curious results we weren't expecting. Um, for for non-donors, it was increasing their response rate. More of them were completing the donation form, which was our theory. Uh, for the previous donors, people either current or lapsed who had given to us before, their response rate wasn't changed by the ticker, but unexpectedly it had increased their average gift size. And we weren't really sure why that was going on. So we puzzled over it and eventually we zeroed in on the fact that we had sort of built this little speck into the ticker without thinking much about the impact, which was that for previous donors, the ticker was only showing them gifts that were within 80 to 120% of their previous highest contribution. While for non-donors, it was just showing all gifts. And so we had inadvertently not just been testing the social proofing effect on our donors, but we were also anchoring them without realizing. I was going to say, you anchored them. You, you <laughs> yes. freaking Starbucks them. That's awesome. So, uh, so we ended up, we tweaked the ticker again so that non-donors would only see gifts within 80 to 120% of sort of a slightly higher than average first time gift. And, and voila, now the, uh, the ticker was influencing non-donors gift size on the retest as well. So you sort of get to that iteration where you're like, well, why did that happen? And how can I test to see if that explanation is what makes sense? Another one of the things I believe I heard you talk about when I heard you present not too long ago at a, at a nonprofit N10 conference is the, is the use of renewing membership. And this is a big thing in the sector because, you know, of first-time donors, according to U.S. Giving, of first-time donors that happened, let's say, in 2016, I'm losing 80% of them in the following year on average. How do you approach the, the renewal question and what sort of tactics have you learned work in, in that? Yes. Um, first of all, the word renew itself continues to be very powerful. Um, it's, I think, a reminder to people that maybe I, I think especially in the environmental space, um, one of the the issues that we all share is is a little bit of difficulty with brand differentiation. Uh, most of our donors also donate to all of our allies in the environmental community. And I think sometimes they're not really sure what the difference is between any of us. They just know that we all do good things. And um, occasionally people will think that they have donated to us recently because they remember donating to some environmental organization. Uh, but it turns out it wasn't us. And just, you know, the the message going out saying to renew your membership or renew your support makes them realize that they didn't actually um, donate to us recently. Sort of along those lines, when we send out renewal emails, we had had a lot of success with putting a little sort of personalized box. You know, we use that faux typewriter font saying, you know, your member name, your member number, your last gift was this date and this amount, just to remind them that it's been a little while maybe. In, a, in, in the last year or so, we've also started sending out emails every month to folks whose last gift was 6, 12, 18, and 24 months uh, prior. And it's sort of just this cute, you know, hey, it's our anniversary. Here are some things that we've celebrated together since your last gift. Uh, why don't you take this, you know, relationship forward and, and let's keep going. Let's stay together. And will you make another gift now? And those are pretty small audiences because they're such a specific set of people whose gift was in that particular month. But they get very high response rates because they are so highly targeted. Wow. So what type of renewal percentage are you expecting? Um, you know, I gave to you last year. What is the likelihood I give again as a first-time donor to EDF? Oh, it's been a little while since I've checked our numbers. I want to say it's maybe two-thirds. About two thirds of people will come back. 
that's incredible. I mean, if you look at the industry average, um, you're you're doing tremendously well. And I, this probably that one little tidbit is maybe worth the entire podcast. Not that it all hasn't been valuable, but I found that remarkable. You know, in terms of the messaging, it's a talk to segmentation and also uh, tribute to to your desire to A/B test and AA test and obviously design experiments around this type of thing. Yeah, okay. it's it's important to remember that even a failed test or a non-result can still be an opportunity to learn. Another way not to make a light bulb. <laughs> okay, so before we move into the rapid fire round, I want to put you on the spot. Okay. Okay, so obviously you have tons of resources at your disposal. You're talking about fantastic tools that, you know, I can't afford. Uh, most nonprofits, about three quarters of it, you know, will say are under a million dollars in terms of uh, annual operating revenue. So I'm about to say you've been hired at a great small nonprofit under a million in operating. Um, they are, let's say, um, in in the medical field, and they have a list size of about thirty thousand. They're using a tool like Mailchimp, and they're trying to fire up their their online giving strategy. How are you going to go about it? How are you going to use available tools and, and design? We'll call a, a poor, a poor, a poor person's approach to all of the smart things you've learned. How do I do this on a budget? Yes. In fact, that was my my previous job was at a, a very small nonprofit where I sort of started the digital program from scratch because we didn't have the money to be sending mail out. Honestly, it was it was uh, the most cost effective thing we could do was to raise money online. Um, other than your donors, staff time is far and away your most precious resource. So digital projects should ideally be maximizing the revenue that your staff can generate with every hour of their time. And that means you're going to prioritize, I would say, two qualities in a new digital project undertaking. Uh, the first would be the low-hanging fruit, stuff that is so low effort that any return is going to practically be free money. Uh, an example of this might be a tactic we often use of resending a high-performing email to folks who didn't open it the first time uh, with a new subject line and see if we have better luck getting their attention on another day. You know, maybe they were busy or, or thinking about something else that day. Um, it takes less than an hour, probably less than half an hour of your lowest paid staffer's time, and it helps you get twice as much mileage out of good content while scooping up extra donations that would have otherwise been lost. So that's always going to be a smart business choice. The other thing to prioritize is stuff you can do set it and forget it on, anything you can safely automate with very little ongoing maintenance. So even if it takes heavy lifting to get it set up over its lifetime, it'll accumulate more than enough return on that investment. It'll just be running in the background, making money for you the whole, whole time. Uh, an example of this could be a light box on your donate form that upsells one-time donors who've just pressed donate, asking them to convert their gift to a suggested monthly amount. Uh, once you've created the script to accomplish that, you can put it on all your donation forms and the ROI is going to just continue to grow month after month. Uh, recurring email campaigns also fall into this category. And a lot of this stuff is a very good reason. If you're going to make one hire, having someone who can, uh, a developer who can write code for some of these custom ideas you come up with is a, a real smart bet. Wow. Lots, lots to think about and to, and to enact. And also remind us that it can be done on a lower budget, though, uh, you have to think about, as you said, uh, the set it and forget it, the the things that you can do once and uh, then have the the robots continue. Yes. Okay. All right. Time for rapid fire round. Are, are, you, right. are you prepared? I think so. All right. What is one mistake you've made in your career that influences the way you do your work? Oof, that's a tough one. Um, you know, I would say the biggest mistakes, um, the mis mistakes have all been just a result of rushing through things. Online, there's a lot of pressure to get things out the door, to turn things around quickly, uh, especially often some of the people in your organization requesting things from you underestimate how long it should take to get something out the door and you maybe feel pressure to meet their timeline instead of a more realistic one. Um, you take on too many projects. And I would say just little things like um, many years ago, I sent out an email that had the wrong Twitter handle in a pre-tweet. It was a, a the uh, this company, Electricity du France has the same uh, acronym as we do. And I had just been hired and didn't stop to think that at EDF might not be my EDF. Um, and, you know, if I had 
been in better communication with our social media team and said, hey, you normally don't look at our emails, but since this one includes some pre-tweets, would you like to take a look at this? They would have caught that instantly. Um, so definitely resist the urge to do everything yourself in a hurry. Uh, take your time, get some other people to look at it. Uh, even if you think they might not have anything to say, they might surprise you. What is one tool or website that you or your organization has used and started using in the last year that has made a difference? Actually, a really cool new one that we just um, popped up in the last couple of weeks is called Tiltify. It's a live streaming fundraising platform. Uh, you could kind of think of it like a modern day telethon. And users on the platform can fundraise for their favorite causes by hosting a live stream. And then their followers can donate right through the viewing platform while they're watching. So they had a user, uh, Markiplier, who uh, recently raised more than $50,000 for us on a single day on the day of the climate march uh, the other weekend, and uh, last weekend. And all we had to do was connect our PayPal account to Tiltify. And now, you know, we're an option on there that people can select if they want to raise for an environmental cause. And it's really incredible how much the Internet and technology you're putting so much power in the hands of individuals to make a really big impact. What tech dragons are we'll call difficulties do you need to slay in the upcoming year? Whew, uh, our biggest challenge is one I'm sure a lot of listeners are familiar with, data in too many places that aren't integrated or talking to each other. Uh, that makes some things impossible. It makes other things far more labor intensive than they ought to be. Uh, what we really need is a, a unified multi-channel marketing platform that can accept incoming data from the mail shop and the email provider and the ad server and the webmaster tools and donor records, put that all in one place and push data back out to all those places as well for when we're pulling lists and targeting. That really opens the door to the highly personalized experience that people expect. Um, for all that people complain about digital privacy, they also paradoxically expect the companies they see online to know them very well and treat them like an individual. Um, you get annoyed when you shop on Amazon and buy a pair of boots and then keep seeing ads for those boots for the next two weeks and you think, well, I already bought those. Stop showing me that ad. <laughs> what is getting you excited that's coming up in the next year? Yeah, earlier I, I talked about the value of automated marketing, because when it's done right, it can offer a really terrific ROI on your staff time. Uh, in the nonprofit world, as much as it pains me, there's still this regrettable emphasis placed on fundraising overhead costs. Um, I could go on a rant here about how expecting an organization not to invest in the very thing that keeps them alive would be insanity in the for-profit world. Um, but instead, I'll just say uh, I'm sure many of you do work for organizations where they're reluctant to add headcount to your fundraising department, and marketing automation can help you do more with less staff. And even if your executives are enlightened enough to invest in the future of your organization by investing in fundraising, uh, then the potential returns on that investment are, are huge with automation. So that's my biggest goal is trying to get as many things running that don't require daily handholding from me. Do you believe nonprofits can successfully go out of business? Oh, that's a good question. Um, I think for environmental groups, that isn't really a, a sort of an immediate threat for us until we live in a world that generates no waste and no pollution. There's always going to be more we can do to reduce our environment, environmental impact and a need to do it. Uh, I used to work in uh, the marijuana legalization industry, which you can more easily see uh, eventually putting itself out of business. And I think in that case, there are sort of two types of people who go to work at nonprofits. The first are people who really care about the particular issue. And when I worked in marijuana legalization, these are the people who went on to work in the legal marijuana industry when they left the nonprofit sector. Uh, so they never worried about being too successful because they were creating an industry that would later give them jobs. Um, and then you see people, which I think I fall into, who just want to make a difference and see no shortage of opportunities to make something better. So if we put ourselves out of business in one cause, we'll move on to the next one. Uh, I'm an optimist, but not so optimistic that I think the world will run out of problems to solve in my lifetime. What is something that you think your organization should stop doing? We all think way too highly of our gut. Uh, there's something about social sciences and so social applications of theory that makes everything seem so deceptively simple. I mentioned my background is in sociology, and it would be so common for me to be sharing the results of a study with someone outside the field and hear, well, of course, that's just common sense. Of course, that's what happened. And yet you could also tell them the opposite of the real results, and they would probably say the same thing. 
Or you would tell them a counterintuitive real finding and they'd reject it out of hand because it didn't fit their personal expectations. Uh, people really think they know human behavior even when they don't and they have a hard time being objective about it. I recently took an email marketing course with Mech Labs uh, led by the brilliant, brilliant Flint McLaughlin. And he said to us, there are no expert marketers. There are only experienced marketers and expert testers. So we're all guilty of thinking we just know that something's going to work. And, you know, I've been working in marketing all these years and it's sharpened our instincts. And I just know whether something is going to be good or bad. But you don't know. You don't know until you test it. And after all these years and, and all the success I've had, I still get surprising test results on a regular basis. So there are no expert marketers, just experienced marketers and expert testers. And what is something you personally think you should stop doing? Oh, I'm just as guilty of that. I, I try to I try <laughs> to think with my gut all the time. And later, I, you know, I'll be sharing a result with someone and they'll say, oh, well, did you test that? How much of a lift did you get? And I'm like, um, no, I just kind of rolled it out. So actually, I have no idea. <laughs> and finally, if you had a Harry Potter style wand that you could wave across the nonprofit sector, what would it do? Oh, Get over the fear of money and the fear of acting too much like a business. The work that we're all doing is so important, and we owe it to the communities we serve to perform as highly as we can. And and stop posting job ads without listing a salary range. Just talented people are less <laughs> likely to even apply if you don't do it. I think it's terrible. <laughs> so I guess that's two things I would change. <laughs> Mighty specific. Finally, how do people find you and how do people help you, Emily? Yeah, if, if folks want to head over to our website at www.edf.org slash help, uh, you can sign up for email alerts, take action on some of the current fights we got going on, make a donation to support our work. And you can also visit edfaction.org. That's our legislative and lobbying arm that works on Capitol Hill and in state legislatures uh, to build bipartisan support for environmental law. Well, thank you for your time. This has been wildly enlightening and a lot of fun certainly an important cause. Uh, so thanks for your time, Emily. Thank you. Well, if you're anything like me, you left, gosh, you left this conversation feeling like there is so much more to do. There are obviously tons of things uh, we could be improving on our email approach and our strategies. Oh yeah, if only that we had the time. You know, I pushed, uh, you could see at the end, I pushed Emily a bit on like, all right, look, if you jump into a smaller organization, what are you trying to do? And conceptually, she immediately jumped to trying to set things up in such a way that, you know, automated marketing and uh, things like drip campaigns, uh, things that will produce value over time are configured, certain types of pop-ups and asks. The type of activities that you can do once and then are repeated by the robots. Holistically, though, it comes, uh, it comes down to segmenting. It comes down to, to testing assumptions and having baselines so you can evolve it. There are a lot of things that you know, will give you a head start in the right direction. You know, I think the, the renew your pledge is a huge bit of information that is proven not just at EDF but others. I also love the fact that you know, we've talked about echo chambering before with advertising and surrounding your target audience. They have the data. They've proven it out. They've shown that when you message people on multi-channel at the same time and sort of synchronize your efforts, you are getting a lift on donations. There's so much more that obviously we know we could be doing, but there's more maybe low-hanging fruit, hopefully, that was revealed to you in the process of this conversation. And so I'll leave it there. You can find resources for uh, you know this amazing podcast episode, episode number 71 at Whole Whale com/podcast where we will have all of the info. Thanks for joining us. This has been Using the Whole Whale: Stories of Data and Technology in the Social Impact World. Resources, as always, may be found at wholewhale.com/podcast. Thanks for joining us. Today's music. From the one and only Greg Thomas, music.org. This guy can customize ditties for you and <laughs> various music that will help get your story heard more effectively. Uh, you know where to reach him, too, because I gave you his domain. And he works at Whole Whale, so you can find him quite easily. And I encourage you to do that.